Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. As you stand with me for the reading of the word, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to back up to verse 13 just to give us some context. Chapter 12, verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the child will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so they called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Father, we do pray that you would bless, Father, your sermon today. I pray, Father, it would touch every heart in here in the way that only your Holy Spirit can bring to a human life. Let it do its work. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You May be seated. In 1955, a malaria outbreak occurred among Borneo's Dayak people. The World Health Organization came to the rescue. They sprayed the people's thatch-roofed huts with DDT and set in motion a life-and-death illustration of the importance of respecting the natural order. The pesticide did kill the mosquitoes, but it also killed a parasitic wasp that kept thatch-eating caterpillars under control. The result? People's roofs began to cave in, and then things got really bad. The local geckos feasted on the toxic mosquitoes and got sick. Cats gorged on the sick geckos, and they dropped dead. And then with no cats, the rats began running wild, threatening the people with a deadly bubonic plague. 
the World Health Organization was in a quandary. What unexpected disasters might occur if it now poisoned the rats? Then someone determined that what they needed to do was to reintroduce part of the natural order that had collapsed, specifically cats to kill rats. So one morning, the Dayak people heard the droning of a slow-flying aircraft. Soon the sky was littered with parachutes bearing kitties to the earth. Operation Cat Drop delivered 14,000 felines to Borneo. They hit the ground, feet first I would imagine, and began taking care of the rats. When I read that, it reminded me that actions sometimes have unforeseen consequences. We're going to see this in the life of David this morning. Since that day that Nathan had confronted him, David's life could be summed up by confrontation and then confession, but now comes the consequences. Look at verse 14 with me. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. What I want us to always remember is there is always a however when it comes to sin. Please note two things here. David was fully forgiven, and yet there would still be repercussions. When we're being seduced by skin, we think, I know that there will be a price to pay, but I've calculated the cost. I've added up the columns, and I think that I can handle it. The problem is, the cost is never what you think. It's never what you calculated. And it's never what you thought. The cost is always infinitely higher than what we thought when we first decided to take that first step into sin. Now these ominous words of the child's sickness impress on us how serious sin is. King David's sin was like all human sin. It would have consequences. And because of David's sin, God's chosen king had given the enemies of God grounds to mock. In days to come, the apostle Paul will say of God's chosen people, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But I want us to see that verse 15 pulls no punches. It tells us up front and unapologetically, that the Lord struck the child. That tells me that there is divine healing, but there is also divine sickness. You'll never hear the 700 Club talk about that, but don't get me started. So no matter how fervently that David fasted and prayed, we're going to see that it was not God's will for the child to recover. We do not necessarily always understand what God does in our lives. But the one who knows all things is righteous in all of his ways. And that reality is greater and more reliable than any discomfort that we may feel. Verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. 
And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went up to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. The man who for too long has acted only in his self-interest at last cared about someone else. He sought God on behalf of the child. Ironically, during those seven days, David's behavior actually reminds us of Uriah's because he refused the normal pleasures of life out of faithfulness to God and to his people. And Uriah's faithfulness had cost him his life at David's hand. At last, however, David is now like Uriah in this. Now, I know it's not popular to talk about fasting, especially as a pastor of a calorie chapel. But you cannot deny or ignore the fact that from Genesis to Revelation, when people went through trouble in their lives, they fasted and they prayed. You see, fasting is rooted in an expression of sorrow. Whenever you find fasting in the Old Testament, most often you find people tearing their clothes, putting ashes on their head, and wearing sackcloth. These were outward signs that the person fasting felt as if their heart had been torn from their body, just as their clothes were now torn. But sorrow isn't the only thing that fasting expresses. It also expresses gravity about our situation. It expresses to God that whatever we are going through is so terrible or so heavy or such a burden to us that we have lost our appetite for physical nourishment and we have now replaced it with the need to seek God's face. David was praying passionately for mercy, asking God to relent if this was possible. He was praying a Gethsemane prayer. Lord, if it is possible, please let this child live, yet not as I will, but as you will. I like what the writer Ian Bounds has to say about prayer. He writes, trouble and prayer are closely related to one another. Prayer is of great value to trouble. Trouble often drives people to God in prayer, while prayer is but the voice of people in trouble. Prayer often delivers out of trouble, and even more so gives strength to bear trouble, ministers comfort in trouble, and produces patience in the midst of trouble. He ends by saying, Wise are they in the day of trouble who know their true source of strength and do not fail to pray. Verse 18, please. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. The elders around them begged him to get up and eat, but he would not do it. This went on for seven days, and on the seventh day, the child died. They were afraid to tell David that the child had died because they thought he might try to commit suicide or something. 
but death dominates the entire scene. Six times in two verses we have heard that the child is dead. The terrible, bleak reality is unavoidable. David's earnest prayers had not averted the announced judgment of God. But it wasn't an unanswered prayer. After six days of praying and fasting, God took the child. And let me remind us this morning as Christians, there are no such things as an unanswered prayer. All prayers are answered either with a yes, a no, or a wait. So when people say, God did not answer my prayer, what it really means is, God did not answer my prayer according to what I want or how I want it. But why would a loving and just God not answer a grieving and repentant father's prayers and just go ahead and heal the child? After all, it wasn't the baby's fault that his father and mother had sinned against the Lord. For that matter, why did God allow Uriah and some of his fellow soldiers to die at Reba just so David could marry Bathsheba? Isn't it interesting that both innocent Uriah and the baby die, and yet the guilty David and Bathsheba live? You know what that tells me? God is completely sovereign over all souls. And if that is true, there is never such thing as an accidental death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and then after this, the judgment. So every single time anyone dies, they are just keeping the appointment that God Almighty has made with them. So really, if you think about it, all death is sudden death. You're alive, 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 and then suddenly... You're dead. You heard it here first. And so we see here that an innocent child died because of someone else's sin. And about a thousand years later, another child would die so guilty men could go free. That's one thing I love about Jesus. He didn't stand aloof from our suffering, but he entered into it. And he never asked anything of us that he himself would not do. No other supposed God is like that. But even knowing all these things, life can be incredibly brutal. Sometimes there are no easy answers to settle our minds. But there are plenty of dependable promises to heal our hearts. And faith is nurtured on promises and not explanations. I've walked with the Lord long enough that when I don't understand his ways, I still have confidence in his character. And like Abraham of old, I can just settle myself by saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Look at verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. 
In scripture, washing oneself and changing clothes symbolizes making a new beginning. And think about it. When seasons change, we also change our clothes. In the winter, we wear heavy coats. In the summer, we put on a bunch of rain gear. They have a t-shirt in Seattle that says, you know it's summer because the rain is warmer. That's how I'm starting to feel here. But just as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for, and then he lists a bunch of different aspects of life. Sometimes there is a time to move above our situation and not dwell on past failings. A change of clothes was expressing one's transformation from passing from the old to the new. Moving from a difficult situation to a place of newness and dependence on God without looking back. David has done all that he could do, and now he worships God. And true repentance has a double aspect like that. It looks upon things past with a weeping eye, but upon things future with a watchful eye. We need to be very careful that we do not fall prey to the trap of only looking at our failures and forgetting about the forgiveness that is ours through faith in Christ. So even though David's prayer didn't have the result he longed for, he is starting over by the grace of God. Now some believe that good health, money in the bank, a nice home, a nice car, nice clothes, a good job with a high income, and a trouble-free life are the signs of an abundant life. Now, those may be good gifts that God does allow us, but it is easy to say that we trust in God when we have all that. But what about when all of that, or even part of that, is stripped away? Job said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. I think too often we are guilty of trusting only in God's deliverance. We say things like, I trust that God will give me a job, or I believe that God is going to heal me. I agree with Oswald Chambers. He says that faith only for my deliverance is not true faith in God. Instead of saying, I trust that God will give me a job, why not just say, I trust God? Those are two completely different things. And only when we abandon ourselves to absolute trust in him will we understand the blessings of that trust. And so David didn't worship because the child was healed. He didn't worship because the child was delivered. He didn't even worship because he was going to see the child again. He worshiped because God is good and he is worthy of our worship. The problem is, we talk about Christianity with all of its benefits, but Scripture describes our lives of faith and following Christ as lives that will be sometimes characterized by suffering and trials and much trouble. But sometimes when our world falls apart, we also fall apart, and we act as though we never saw it coming. When the truth of the matter is, that we of all people should know what it is like to live with differing degrees of hardship. The Christian life is never described in the Bible as a life of prosperity and ease. In fact, it is filled with men and women 
who willingly chose to suffer. In other words, they were signing up for trouble. And yet, when we experience trouble, whether it's because of our faith or just part of everyday life, we can sometimes wonder where God went. And so in this, David is a great example for us. Verse 21. Then the servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David's conduct seemed to be the reverse of what would make sense. He appeared to mourn for the child before he died, but after he died, when grief would be expected, David abandoned his weeping and returned to his normal life. Now the elders were shocked because they were expecting him to wail, scream, curse God, and who knows what else. So they asked him, what is the deal with your behavior? You go from praying and fasting, and then when you didn't get what you prayed for, you're acting as though you did get what you prayed for. David has learned what it means to fear God and to acknowledge the power of God and to know that God is ultimately in control. He said, look, while, I, while, I, while he was alive, I fasted and prayed because, who knows, I thought maybe the Lord would be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that the child is dead, I know it's still not over. I can't bring the child back to me, but I can and I will go to that child. And that brings us up to a question. What happens when children die? Any discussion of the fate of children who die ultimately comes to the issue of the age of accountability. And although the concept of the age of accountability has been around since very early in the history of the Christian church, that term never actually occurs in Scripture. But the term itself alludes to the age in which a child becomes responsible for their relationship with God. I need to make this clear. There is no one age at which every person becomes accountable for knowing that they are a sinner. Only God knows, really, the time when a child becomes accountable. And we all understand that there is a period of time in which children are incapable of understanding the difference between good and evil, and especially cannot understand that they are sinners who need to be saved. What then happens to the one who is not yet old enough, or those housed in mature bodies, but whose minds are impaired in such a way that they cannot grasp their need for salvation. I think one such example is that God allowed the Israelite children of the parents who had willfully sinned against God in the wilderness to enter into the promised land and not hold them accountable for their parents' sins. In Deuteronomy 1.39 we read, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. John MacArthur states it well when he writes, 
How can we believe that God weeps over the lost and pleads with willful sinners to be reconciled to him if he catapults millions upon millions of innocent babies into hell before they even reach a state of moral culpability and before they have the ability to make any real distinction between good and evil? David's confidence in this fact is strongly contrasted by how David reacted when a second adult son, Absalom, was killed. When he learned that his infant son died, David stopped mourning. But when he learned his adult son had died, he started mourning. What was the difference? It was not just that David started mourning when Absalom died. It was that he was completely inconsolable. David mourned with unrelieved grief for Absalom because he believed he would not see this wicked and rebellious son again. He knew that his infant son was in heaven. He knew this other son had died in his sins without repentance. And so in this case, it is true that the baby didn't get to grow up and enjoy the good things in life. And that is sad. But he also didn't have to deal with acne, trigonometry, arthritis, and bladder control issues. That kid missed all of that and went to a paradise we can't even imagine. And I promise you this morning, he's cool with that. Verse 24, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It's interesting that before her son died, God called Bathsheba Uriah's wife, possibly because that's who she was when the son was conceived. But in verse 24, she is now called David's wife, which suggests that like David, she is also making a new beginning. At least nine months are compressed into verses 24 and 25, and those were nine months of God's grace and tender mercy. Because we would not expect God to bless the union of David and Bathsheba. After all, it was so contaminated with sin. It started out as an adulterous relationship that led to multiple deaths. Now, for those of us who have blown it, I want us to see that God remains the God of the second chance. Even though the way that Bathsheba and David started was all wrong, and there are yet prices that are going to be paid, God does not cast them by the wayside. He forgives them both, but God's sentence is still going to come to pass. So how do we know that God forgives them and removes the barrier in their spiritual lives. When Bathsheba gets pregnant once again by her husband David, God immediately sees something special in this child. Now Solomon had two names. Solomon, which means peaceful, which I think specifically speaks to the fact that David is now at peace with both God and himself, and Jedidiah. But that, mean, that name means beloved of God. This encourages me. Because the Lord could have said, I am not going to honor your relationship with Bathsheba. You've blown it, and nothing good is going to ever come out of that. But our God is a God who exchanges beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Our God can turn what is hurtful into something beautiful. 
David repented. He's been chastened. And now he is forgiven. And now God would bless that relationship. From this union would come Solomon. This is almost incomprehensible to us. How could a marriage such as this one ever receive God's favor? The answer, which can be just as difficult to comprehend and accept, is that the Lord truly did put away David's sin. He no longer took it into account in his dealings with David. The Lord chooses to remember his sins no more. His grace really is that amazing. But David did have a part in all of this. What was it? He repented and turned from his sins. And his darkness was once again turned to light. And speaking of lights, we have a motion sensor light on our porch. I've told you in the past, we're pretty sure it has a demon as it often won't come on until we are actually inside the house. Or God may just be using it to test my sanctification process. All that aside. Now, how it's supposed to work is when you come near it, it should pop on, and when you leave it, it should pop off. In other words, the light will only work when it detects motion. When there is no motion, electricity is not to be wasted. Now, the power is waiting at the light, but it's designed not to work until somebody is moving. I think in the same way, God has programmed his word not to work in our lives until motion is detected. As long as there is no movement, as in unconfessed sin, the power of his word and spirit are there, but it is programmed not to work until there is movement on our part. And when you see God moving in the pages of Scripture, you will see time and time again that God will tell the people what they need to do first before he does anything. Moses, hold out your rod. Now the Red Sea opens. Joshua, tell the priests to put their feet in the Jordan. Now the water parts. Noah, build an ark. Now the rains can begin. Mary, have them move the stone. Now Lazarus can be resurrected. God's word waits on action so that we can be walking by faith and not just talking by faith. Later concerning this, the apostle James would say, but prove yourself doers of the word and not hearers only as those who delude themselves. One last thing I want us to get out of this is that David both received and accepted God's forgiveness. Because sometimes when people have an epic failure, they kick themselves for the rest of their lives. And they allow only that failure to define them. David, to his credit, is a model for us here. He accepted God's forgiveness, and then he used that forgiveness as a great source of thankfulness and praise to God from which we get many of our psalms. And his life has been a great source of hope for generations of people like me who have blown it from time to time. As we close, 
Gary Enrich in his book, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, tells the following story. He writes, There was a very capable evangelist whom God used in a significant way in the British Isles. But he lost his interest in spiritual things and drifted into a life of sin for a number of months. Some of his sin was done in secret, but ultimately it became public knowledge. At first, all he could think of was that he had been ruined for life. But finally, he realized what a fool he had been, and he came back to God like the prodigal from the pig pen. He found exactly the same thing that the prodigal did. The Lord welcomed him with open arms and began once again to strengthen him and bless him. Finally, after a very long period of waiting, he felt pressed back into ministry for the Lord. But he was afraid that his sins would be found out and brought up all over again. But after he felt sure it was hidden and tucked away in the past, he went back to preaching and rejoicing the forgiveness of God. One night when he was in Aberdeen, he was given a sealed letter. Just before the service began, he read the unsigned letter. It described a shameful series of events he had been engaged in. His stomach churned as he read it. The letter said, If you have the gall to preach tonight, I'll stand and expose you. He took the letter and went to his knees. A few minutes later, he was in the pulpit. He began his message by reading the letter start to finish. Then he said, I want to make it perfectly clear that this letter is completely true. I'm ashamed of what I've read, and I'm ashamed of what I've done. I come tonight not as one who is perfect, but as one who is forgiven. And God used that letter and the rest of his ministry as a magnet to draw people to Christ. And since it's just us here this morning, let's all be honest. We have all failed, every one of us. But the blood of Christ covers our sins and enables us to live victoriously. Like David, we can rise from our suffering and shame because of God's forgiveness. And there's no better way to express that than partaking of the Lord's Supper. Father, we are so thankful that you're not just the God of the second chance, Lord, you're the God of the millionth chance. And I'm so thankful that uh, you are that for everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, no matter where any person is within the sound of my voice, that you would be the God to them that they need you to be, whether it is in salvation, sanctification, encouragement, only you know, Lord. Show yourself mighty on the behalf of these people, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.